Well, good morning to everyone. I uh, hope you all had a wonderful uh, Thanksgiving and are uh, recovered from your turkey comas um, and wide awake for today's message. Um, so well, how, does it, how does this happen at the end of like a vacation like this? Four days off, you're like a little even more tired than you were. You're like, I need about four or five more days. Um, but it's, uh, it's good to have you with us today. If you're new, especially, um, I'll be at the connection table across the hall. Um, would love to say hi introduce myself um, if you have a chance after the service is over. I don't, I don't know if anybody, uh, I know many of you went on the retreat back in October up to New Hampshire. Uh, the theme for the retreat was, uh, was presence and the idea of being fully present with, with God, uh, being fully present with others, and being fully present on mission uh, in the world. And uh, in particular, this, that, that retreat weekend was powerful for a lot of people. It was for me. Um, I actually kicked the weekend off by preaching on uh, John 15 uh, uh, that Saturday morning and on being present with God, right? Uh, the, the, the passage where Jesus talks about, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me and I in you, you'll bear much fruit. Apart from me, you will do nothing. And uh, that idea of abiding really has stuck with me. It's uh, been something that uh, that study was very rich for me. Uh, and continuing in that has been, uh, has really um, encouraged me. I've been going through a devotional by um, Andrew Murray a 19th century pastor and theologian on uh, abiding in Christ. Uh, if you enjoy uh, some old Victorian Elizabethan style English, I encourage you to read it. Um, but uh, there is a modern translation. It's just a 31-day devotional, maybe five pages pages or so for each, uh, each for 31 days. Um, I've been going through that a little slower than, than one per day, but it's been good for me. And it's been reminding me because uh, this word abide to uh, remind us, not something we use a lot in our culture, but it's where we get our word abode from. It's the Greek word meno, meaning to stay in a given place, state, relation, or expectancy, to continue, to dwell, to endure, um, to, to be present, to be fully present, to make one's home. Uh, there's always a relational connection element to this word, both in the Greek word and in the Hebrew word behind it. And so I've been wrestling with this question leading up to Advent. I was like, you know, we could kind of go the traditional route with Advent and look at some Old Testament prophecies and uh, pointing to Jesus, and, and that's great, and, and uh, certainly think that's worthy of our time, as we've done many times before. But I really kept thinking about this idea of what would it mean to abide in Jesus during Advent or abide in Jesus through Advent? Um, rather than the idea of longing and waiting for the coming Christ, right, which is what we, we try to get into the mindset of the Old Testament uh, people waiting for the coming of the Messiah, I wanted us to use that longing, that waiting for uh, thinking about abiding and what it means. Because I, I would guess across this room that every person in here um, would just confess, I, I'm, I, I'm not abiding 24-7. Maybe you're in a great spiritual spot right now, and you are. Praise God, that's awesome. But I bet the majority of us are not in that state right now. But we might remember being like that. We might remember waking up in the morning, and the first thought that hit our head is Jesus. And we remember that time of just walking in joy, walking in constant thought, constant reflection, constant presence of Christ. And so uh, this series we're going to be spending over the next um, month or so um, is, is uh, about abiding during the Advent season, because I want to know what it means to abide in Jesus. I want to know what it means to abide uh, when I'm having a great day and things are going well. I want to know what it means to abide in Jesus when I'm discouraged, when I'm, um, when I'm, I'm having a hard day, when I'm uh, struggling or angry or afraid. 
Abiding in Jesus through Advent is our invitation to uh, press in deeper into this. Uh, as we've seen in our study, uh, or uh, what we're going to see in this study, is uh, four aspects. Abiding in uh, the light, abiding in the spirit, abiding in prayer, and then abiding in love as aspects of this. All of these are tied to John 15, but they're very present throughout scripture. In fact, the word abide is a very present, a very common word in the New Testament. It's, sometimes it just simply means remain, but, but other times it, it has a deeper significance of making one your home, uh, making somewhere your home. Today we're looking at abiding in the light. And the themes of light and darkness actually surround Advent, right? We all know that, the, the, the idea of it, uh, Jesus uh, being born at night and the, the, the angels appearing to the um, shepherds. And, you know, nobody, when we see that image, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Light, right? You're not like, they, were, they weren't like, what is that up there? It's really loud, you know? No, the, it says the glory of God filled the heavens. It was bright. It like blinded them. This was, think about no, no uh, light pollution, and you're out on the hillside, and you're, you're keeping your sheep, and all of a sudden the sky, sky lights up. You've never seen anything like it. It, is, it was a blinding light, the idea of the star that led the, um, the wise men from the east. All of these are rooted in the story, and actually go back into the Old Testament. Uh, that, In fact, in our story of Genesis, right? What did God create? First day, created light, right? He created light, and then establish the, the bodies that reflect that light to the world. Throughout the Old Testament, um, light symbol is symbol, a symbol of God's presence and goodness. And this time of the year, many of you might see uh, menorahs around Brookline, right? Brookline's a very Jewish community, so it's Boston in general, but you might see menorahs. Menorahs are actually rooted in the um, Old Testament tabernacle, the instructions that God gave to build, there should be a picture of one, yeah, uh, to build the menorah and put it in the tabernacle as a, as a sign. Now, this is not a tiny thing. You might see people with a little tiny you know, bookshelf, bookshelf one, but this is actually over five feet tall. It's meant to be large and, and imposing. Um, it's, it's a symbol of the, the seven branches resemble uh, a tree. In Jewish tradition, the menorah was a reminiscent of the tree of life. And also uh, another um, aspect of it was um, just the sense of God's glory and goodness. You can imagine that in the dark tabernacle, right? When God built the tabernacle, they didn't string lights, right? There were no LED lights in there. Uh, it was dark. You went into the tabernacle, it was dark. But then you had this imposing menorah lit up, right? It was a sign, a symbol of God's glory and God's presence among his people uh, in the midst of a dark and sinful world. Jewish tradition holds that this also was to remind people that they were called to be a light to the nations, that they were to take the light of God and his character and his goodness to the world. Keep that in mind, and throughout the whole Old Testament, this idea of God's light and light being connected with who God is at his very essence. And then you get into the life of Jesus, and he's standing in the temple, not far from the menorahs. And in fact, probably standing underneath one of the giant lights that were up on posts that were meant to light up the, ta uh, the temple court uh, during uh, festive seasons. And he says in John eight twelve, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John twelve forty six. I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If you wonder why people got mad at him, 
It's because the entire Old Testament had said only God is light, right? We have the menorah to point to God, and now all of a sudden a person goes, I'm the living menorah. <laughs> I, am the, I am God in your presence. There's no need for the menorah. I am the light. This word in John 12, 46, that you may not remain in darkness is actually the word abide. Again, that we may not abide, remain, or be present in darkness anymore. You see, we're born into that darkness. We're born into a dark world. And because our sin, we are marked by our father, Adam, we're born into an old humanity that is stamped and defiled by sin. And so you don't have to teach a child to sin, right? You don't have to tell them, you know, once in a while, you just need to tell a good lie. You need to get angry and throw something at your sister. Like it just happens, right? It comes out as kids grow up. And I know you're thinking, well, no, my, not my child. My child's a little angel. They're the worst, okay? Because they're, they're snowing you. But behind the scenes, they're wicked little sinners. I promise you. Uh, you just think they're good. Um, install a camera. <laughs> You'll figure it out. <laughs> But the very purpose, Jesus is saying, the very purpose that I came into the world is not just to bring the light, but to be the light that we need. And so the theme for today is this, that the light came to live as a person so you as a person could come to live in the light. The light came to live as a person so that you as a person could come to live in the light. And we're going to look at this from John, 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through uh, chapter 2, verse 22. And this passage in particular, um, well, throughout John's letters, he loves this word abide, and, and we're going to see uh, references to it uh, here. And matter of fact, you'll see some, some elements connected with John 15 if you're familiar with that passage. But this is what John says. When I'll read it, and then when I'm done, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and I invite you to respond by saying thanks be to God. Before I do that, though, do we love the strings today? Anybody else? I just realized I was, I was going to talk about them when I got up here, but my brain started thinking about the sermon. You definitely want to thank those folks. They just volunteered, and they're going to be here all Advent, right? And Christmas Eve. So you definitely don't want to miss Christmas Eve. Um, so it's such a blessing. If you're serving, thank you for, for giving your time to do that. Let's read together. This is the message that we heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We're going to see um, here three ways that um, we embrace the light, walking in the light. And the first is by affirming God's character. By affirming God's character and who he is. Uh, John simply says, God is light, right? Um, to think about that and what that would be, I wish I like, could do this, and, and I'm sure Shane could probably figure it out fairly quickly, but we're not going to. Uh, turn off all the lights in the room and make it completely pitch dark. If I could do that, we could sit there for a second, and then I could flip it on. We could flip these lights back on. How would you define light? 
How would you define light? This is the audience participation portion of our service. How would you define light at that moment? Bright? Revealing? Yeah. It's, it, it's not just that you see light, right? But that by light you see. You see something else. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. How does John know this? Because God's light has shone on him. This is very similar to what C.S. Lewis, another cursory quote here from him, we have to use every week. Um, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun is set, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. John, he's actually echoing uh, Psalm 36, verse 9, for with you, God, is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. So it's by the light of God that we can even see light, that we understand what light is. John isn't saying the light's turned on and I saw God. He's saying God is light. God is the definition of light. He's not a light. I would argue he's not even saying he is the light. He is saying in his essence, God is light. Everything else that we understand light to be derives from who he is in his presence. God's glory throughout scripture is constantly connected with, his, uh, with brightness and uh, light. So much that even his people couldn't look upon it. If you remember, in the, uh, as the people were out, led out into the wilderness and were at the base of Mount Sinai, at some point they just told Moses, hey, you keep going up there. We're, we can't even, we, we got to stop staring at this thing. And then Moses would come down. You remember Moses would talk to God and then come down and what would happen? His face was so bright. People were like, I can't, I, can't even, I can't even look at you, Moses. So he had to wear a veil over his face, right? To symbolize, to show the, that God's presence itself is light. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 16 simply says, God dwells in unapproachable light. Meaning that right now in this moment, if we could pull back the veil and see God in his glory enthroned in heaven, then it would be so bright, so powerful that we would be incinerated. It'd be like going to visit the center of the sun, right? We do not belong there. We, it is completely other than us, right? No one in here thinks visiting the middle of the sun would be cool. I mean, it would be if you could have a suit to like, you know, protect yourself, but, but we know that we don't belong there. Life can't exist there. We do not have the right. There is nothing in us to be able to approach God's glory and light. So God is light, and in him there is no darkness. This, this is important to distinguish from other concepts of good and evil in the world, right? God is not yin and yang. God is not yin and Satan yang. God is not a mixture of motives. God is not a, a, a split personality with good and bad. God is not a division or a conflict. He is, in essence, and in completion, light and glory. That is his perfect character. Then darkness to understand darkness as the absence of light, it's the opposite of everything, right? Darkness is sin and rebellion against God by human beings. It is the existence of anything that is against the light. So God is holy, darkness is unholy. God is morally pure, darkness is impure. God is undefiled, darkness is defiled. God is light and darkness hates light because light exposes the darkness, doesn't it? You've never opened a door into, a, 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 into a, a, a dark room from a light room and the darkness invade the light room, right? What happens? 
Just the opposite, the light invades the darkness. And so God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. This is important to understand God's character. Because if we're going to understand who Jesus is and what it means to anticipate and long for and seek to dwell with him, we have to understand what the light is. The light came to live as a person so that you as a person could come to live in the light. So out of this then, John calls us, the second point he makes here is uh, a way we live in the light is by acknowledging our sin. Acknowledging our sin. I would argue in this room, it's not that anyone in here thinks they don't sin. I mean, maybe you do. Maybe, maybe you feel like you don't. But I think the majority of us would say, well, sure, yeah, I sin, you sin. But the problem is we're often so busy and distracted that we don't have space in our lives to stop, reflect, and listen to the Spirit of God and the light of God shining in our hearts. We're constantly running from one thing to another. The average person spends six hours and 43 minutes a day online. That's two full days a week. 42, 42 or 42% of our waking lives. 80% of us check our phones immediately upon waking up. We check our inbox 30 times per hour on average. And we pick up our phone 1,500 times a week. In a recent survey, 41% of us would rather give up sex for a year than give up our phone. (laughs) We are chronically distracted. Think about about how how the light works. The light works by shining deep into our hearts. But if we keep ourselves so busy and so distracted that we can't experience the light shining into our hearts, we're not pausing long enough for the light to reflect, to, to, to dig in and shine into the dark spots, then what happens? We end up kind of functionally living with darkness in our hearts. Abiding takes time and space. It takes being still. It's funny, uh, Blaise Pascal in his uh, work, Pensees, in 1654 wrote this, I have discovered that all of the unhappiness of men arises from one single fact, that they cannot stay quietly in their own chamber. <laughs> That's pretty funny <laughs> for uh, almost 400-year-old piece of literature. It's true. It's interesting that even in Pascal's time, people were so busy trying to distract themselves that they could not sit still. If you can't sit still for for 15 minutes or or 30 minutes or an hour in silence, like what does that say about you? The ability to sit silently in a room is actually a, a mark of a healthy person. One recent study showed that people would rather be electronically shocked than sit alone with their thoughts for as little as 6 to 15 minutes. University of Virginia study, uh, the research team left participants in a room, in a lab room alone for 15 minutes. Uh, And in this lab room, they could push a button and shock themselves if they wanted to. Despite the fact that all participants had previously stated that they would pay money to avoid being shocked with electricity, during the 15 minutes, 67% of men and 25% of women chose to inflict themselves with electric shock. (laughs) What in the world does that say? I cannot stand, shock me. I cannot sit here by myself, right? And I, I could make some arguments why it's 67% of men and only 25% of women, but well, there's, some, there's something in a guy that's like, I wonder how bad that hurts, you know? Like, that's probably some of them. But 
there's a reason that a lot of people can't sit alone with their thoughts. One of them is that our sin comes to mind, our guilt, our shame, our inadequacies, our feelings of failure, our struggles, the things that have been done to us, right? We, we can't sit alone with those thoughts. We are, we are afraid to admit to ourselves that we are, we're failures. It's like the great uh, theologian Taylor Swift recently wrote. <laughs> it's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. At tea time, everybody agrees. I'll start stare directly at the sun, but never in the mirror. It must be exhausting, always rooting for the anti-hero. I'm telling you, it's a good song. Like, musically, it's fine. I've I'm, I'm never been a huge Taylor Swift fan, but I appreciate her talent. But I will tell you this, like, the lyrics, you should read the rest of the lyrics of that song. It's probably the most sort of, like, exposing of, like, not everybody else is your problem in life. It's, it's rooted here. And Christians, John is addressing here is, is challenging us to walk in the light and admit, acknowledge our own sin. Look at verse 6, verse 8, and verse 10. You think he's trying to emphasize something here. We say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness. We lie and do not practice the truth. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Of course, like I said, everybody in this room would admit we struggle, right? Everybody raise your hand. Oh, I struggle. You struggle. We all struggle. But how specific are we in acknowledging our sin? How many of us have done that recently with God and with others? Really brought this, your sin to light. You see, in, in, shadow, in the shadow, sin can thrive. It can grow. It's like, it's like having a closet in your house, and the rest of the house is lit up, but you open up that closet, it's pitch dark, and you just kind of shove the sin in there and close the door. It's still there. You have not dealt with it, and it will bust out in time. And John's saying, if we're walking in darkness, we are lying and not practicing the truth. You can't abide in the light of Jesus, experience him as the fullness and goodness of God in your life while walking with darkness in your heart. So John gives us a solution, thankfully. He's not here to condemn us, but helping us to acknowledge our sin so that we can do something about it. Look at verse 7. But if we walk, there's that idea. It's, it's not abide, but it's that idea of like continuing with, right? Can, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. Walking in the light means dragging your sin into the light. Some of you are like, I know, God will see it. He already does, right? Like, that should be liberating. We don't want to admit it, but he sees it. He knows it. He knows the depth of your heart even today. If we walk in the light, there are a couple of results here that he says happen. One is we have fellowship with one another, that is, um, with, each, with the Father and with each other. The word fellowship, I don't know anything outside of, of, uh, of Christians that use this, right? It's a, if you're not a Christian or from, not from a Christian background, I'm sure the first few times you heard fellowship, you were like, what, what is that? That sounds weird and kind of cultish, right? Like, I don't, it's where it comes from this passage or, and, 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 and some other passages, but the word, the, the Greek word is, is koinonia, which uh, gets even used in more specific Christian circumstances and places. But it's hard to put it into English well. It's in translated fellowship, communion, participation, share a common life, and partnership. 
Its root is this word common, and the emphasis is on shared versus individual or one's own. So the experience Jesus is saying, or, or John is saying that we have fellowship with God, that, that there's a, a, a unity there. We belong in and with God, and we belong in and with each other when we walk in the light. And then he says the important, uh, the really important part here is that, and what enables that fellowship is the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. The word cleanses here is in the present active indicative, meaning that it's ongoing, continuous. I know we all are English nerds, right? But it it does mean that it's ongoing, continuous. It's not simply a one-time thing. It isn't uh, isn't a matter of walking in the light uh, and that, that your sin is cleansed once, but that you are continually walking and experiencing the cleansing of Jesus. He reiterates this in verse 9. Which ironically, I'll read it. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So many of you know I I had to go to church. My parents made me go to church in high school, even though I was living completely off the deep end. My parents said, if you're going to go out Friday night and Saturday night, you're getting up for Sunday morning. And if you can't get up to go to church on Sunday morning, you can't go out next Friday and Saturday night. So it was an exchange I made. It was an evil exchange, but it was an exchange I made. But I remember like my junior or senior Sunday school teacher uh, like taught us this verse so many times and it like stuck in my head. By the way, don't ever underestimate the power of sowing scripture into people's lives long term. <laughs> Teaching your kids scripture, even if they go off the rails, God will bring that to mind. And this one has been one that has um, been such an encouragement to me over the years. If we confess our sins, the word confess here is a compound word in the Greek meaning homo, uh, uh, homo the same, and logeo meaning to say. And so homo logeo is to say the same thing about your sin. If you confess your sins, you are saying the same thing about your sin that God says. You're not denying it. You're not euphemism. You're using euphemisms. Oh, I, God, I really messed up. I made a mistake, right? No, I sinned against you. I chose my own way. I rebelled against your rule, your goodness, and chose to live in darkness. It is saying the same thing about God. It's a present tense verb, meaning that God expects you to keep on doing it. If you confess your sins, not confessed, past tense, but present. And it's plural, isn't it? He doesn't say if you confessed your sin. So you confess your sins. So what are you struggling with as a Christian today? Do you acknowledge that before God? Is that, when I ask that question, is that something that instantly jumped to your mind? I know what I'm struggling with. I know that thing that keeps hindering me, that thing that keeps stealing my joy, that thing that keeps me from walking in the light. That thing, every Christian should have it on the tip of their tongue because it should be something we're confessing consistently. Now I know we, we should be confessing it to God and then James says we should be confessing our sins to one another. Now this is the hard one, right? The hard one is, is actually confessing, not saying, simply saying like, hey, I wronged you, you should do that, but that's for the sake of repentance. Confessing your sins to one another is confessing how you're struggling with another believer because they're walking in the light and you're seeking to walk in the light. Now I know, that's, it's the hard part, right? But they'll be really disappointed in me. Listen, is anyone in here under the illusion that there is one person in this room who's sinless? Anyone in here think that you could point to someone in this room and just, they just got it all together, they don't send it all? So keep that in mind. You're not going to disappoint them. They know you're a sinner. 
They know you're a sinner. And then secondly, the cross itself stands as the greatest indicator of, of your sin in human history. Right? If your sin and my sin wasn't real, Jesus died as a waste. His horrible death on the cross, his blood poured out, his body broken for you. It wasn't as he was hanging on the cross, he was like, oh, except for her, she's going to hold it all together. I, I, but everyone else I'm dying for because they're wicked sinners. No, he didn't, there was no one that, that wasn't covered. He, even in, in uh, chapter two, it says for the whole world. So we are called to confess, to repent, to walk in the light. The light came to live as a person so you as a person could come to live in the light. We do that by seeing and, 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 and um, de- desiring and longing for and understanding God's character. And then secondly, by acknowledging our sin. And then thirdly here, I want us to see, and John wants us to see more importantly, that we're called to resist the darkness. Now, this... This is one that like takes this whole text, but really lands in chapter two, verses one and two. Um, but let me let me use this as an illustration to see how many of you have gotten up at night. You've walked around. Um, you've, you've you've gotten up in the night. It's dark. You didn't turn the light on, uh, but you had to go to the restroom and had to go get some water, or whatever. And and you didn't turn your light on. But while you were walking somewhere along the way, you made a turn, and you're usually pinky toe. Because it's not the big ones. It's, it's always the smallest one, the, the most uh, weak of them all. Uh, hit something, right? And, and a shooting pain goes through your entire body just like it got ripped off. Like just literally you're like thinking there's blood everywhere, right? Uh, it's that feeling that, that you usually you think you know how to navigate in the darkness, but you really don't. And, or, you, or like me, you forget an object in the room. We have a pack and play in our room, bedroom right now. It's not for me, it's not for Teresa, and we don't have a baby, if you're wondering, but we do have a grandchild that comes over sometimes, so she takes naps in there. I have, I have found that pack and play at night <laughs> in the dark. And the problem is that we, I, I think I'm navigating rightly. I'm confident in my ability. I don't need to turn the light on. I am good without the light. And that's the subtle temptation of our darkness. We misjudge what we thought we know. Advent may be a season where you're struggling with your own brokenness. You can feel overwhelmed by by your shame, your guilt, disappointment in yourself. Your struggle is with sin. And and the darkness is is an easy place to go. Satan is very subtle in this. And let me tell you what this is. You're in the room with the light on. You open the door. There's light shining in there, but he's in the darkness calling, come in here for you just blew it big time. Come on back in here and hide a little bit. It's okay. And let me tell you how, how, how ugly and sinister this is. This is what happens to me sometimes. Something happens, sin, struggle, uh, conviction over something I've done, and I realize like I'm disappointed in myself. I don't know. I'm just going to go ahead and lay that out for all of you in your 20s and 30s. You're going to still be disappointed when you're 50. Um, you're not going perf- to get it all together. You think you might, but you're not. You're still going to struggle. There's still going to be sin. It's still going to be a reality in your life. And, and, and so, like, I can be disappointed. I'm a pastor. I've read the Bible a lot. I've prayed a lot. I've talked to, you know, I've, I've studied theology. I've, I've done all the right things, but somehow I still struggle. So then my tendency is to go to this point of going like, man, I just need, you know what I need? I'm going to fast tomorrow. And I need, I'm going uh, to try to, to build this boundary or I'm going to try to, to deal with it that way. And I'm going I'm to work on this. I'm going to do better. 
Now, that's not a bad desire in and of itself, but what, I, what sneaks in there is that if I fast tomorrow and I do a little bit better, God will approve me. God will like me a little bit more than he does right now, right? Because, I mean, sure, I would look down and be disappointed. Like, look at this guy. I, I sent him to seminary, right? I sent him to seminary, gave him the Bible. He reads it. He gets paid to read the Bible, right? He gets paid to pray. <laughs> and here he is blowing it again. Now, that's how I would act. Thank God I'm not God because that's not how God acts. God is like a father, just like uh, when, when my kids were little, if they blew it, if they messed up, they, they, they disobeyed me, I didn't want them to come to me with their laundry list of ways to make it up to me. Okay, Dad, you know, I, you told me not to play with that thing or mess with that thing, but I did, and it broke, so I've decided I can wash your car, I'll clean up the dishes after dinner, and I'll, um, you know, cut the grass. How's that sound? Wouldn't you as a parent be like, that's wicked. It's wicked that you would think that that's what I want from you. I want you to come and confess. I want you to experience love. I don't want you to doubt how I feel about you and feel like you've somehow got to earn yourself back into my favor. That's darkness. You've gone from operating under grace now to operating under moral performance, and it is subtle, and it is evil, and the entire book of Galatians is about it. You've fallen back under this idea that if you'll just be good enough, then you can sort of abide in the light again. But you don't come into the light, you don't earn your way into the light by being sinless. You come into the light so you can see your sin and confess it. Because God sees it, and he wants to do something about it. This is what he's saying in in, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Listen to how John, John's older in his life at this point. We don't know exactly how old, but maybe 70 or 80. He says, my little children. He's writing, he, even the language I was invoking of being a parent, right? You're hearing him wanting to console his beloved, his flock that he loves. He says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So I, I want you to not fall into sin, but that's a good but in scripture. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. John is telling us to resist the pull of hiding, to resist denying, to resist pretending, resist going back into the darkness because we feel the darkness in us. When you feel the darkness in us, you don't fix that darkness by going into darkness. You fix that darkness by bringing it into the light. And so he's, he's reassuring us here. He's, he's making it clear. I love this. He's, 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 uh, he uses the term advocate. Jesus is our advocate. This is a word helper. It's actually a term used a legal counsel. He is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. What does this mean? This means that when, 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 sin, when Satan comes to accuse you, look at her. She's supposed to be a good Christian. Look how she did that again. Jesus says, Mm-mm, nope. We've already brought that into the light. I paid for it. There is literally no accusation you can make against her that will stick because it has all been redeemed. It has all been paid for. I am 
your advocate. Jesus is looking at you and saying, you are free, don't walk in sin. You are free, don't walk in conviction and condemnation. You are free, come into the light, live in the light, resist that darkness. That word propitiation means an atoning sacrifice for sin. So Jesus is quite literally saying, when you sin, when you struggle, I am your advocate. That's a good reason to bring it into the light, isn't it? That's a good reason this Advent season to not hide in the dark and in the busyness of your schedule. Pause. Bring it into the light. Say you want to abide in the light, to live in the light this Advent season. I love uh, John 8, 31 and 32 and verse 36. It says, so Jesus said to the Jews who followed him, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. If the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. That's good news, friends. That's good news during this Advent season that the, the, the light shines down and, and there is nothing to hide. There's only truth. But we don't have to fear that truth because we are set free by Christ. What if this Advent season wasn't about you running from activity to activity, numbing your heart and soul? but actually experiencing the light in a deeper way? What if Advent was a season your soul could breathe? What if every time you saw a Christmas light this season, you were just reminded of abiding in the light, of longing for that a little bit more in your life? Because I think that's probably what the Christian life really boils down to is embracing that truth, embracing that life, embracing that light and walking in it more and more day by day. As we do that together as a church, that's why Jesus could look at his people and say, you are a city on a hill. You are the light of the world. That's a reminder for us this this holiday season. And the beauty of this moment as we come to our time of response and communion is, is, is not the Holy Spirit's conviction of you telling you how bad you are right now. That's not the Spirit. The Spirit will convict you of sin, but will convict you to sin to bring it into the light. The only reason a person can end up, I think a Christian can end up feeling condemned is if they're hiding in the darkness. Because you have no assurance at that point. If you're not looking to Jesus, you're only looking to your sin. And so come into the light today. The light has come to live as a person so you as a person could come to live in the light. So I invite you to take communion, but uh, as a Christian, if you're a follower of Christ, you know where you stand with him today. You wanna walk in the light. Communion is that reassurance that Christ is your advocate. He is your propitiation. He has paid the price for your sin. And so you can come and take a few moments, confess, repent, but don't come in shame and fear. Come in joy knowing that Christ didn't do this reluctantly for you. He knew what he was buying and he delights in you. So communion is meant to be a space to delight in him. So take your time, reflect, pray, get your heart in the right spot during this next song, and then you can slip out. If you're a Christian, we'll make our way to the front, kind of go out the side door. We have to take communion outside because there's no food or drink in here, and then make your way in through the back. If you're not a Christian or don't know where you stand with him today, we invite you to just reflect and pray over this next song. Communion is for those who have taken that step, who are fully in on Christ, wanting to walk in the light. If you want to walk in the light today, we want to help you to take that step. 
um, to do that. You can mark on your connection card and we'll follow up with you or you can find me in the back after the service. Uh, We'd love to help you in that journey and make this Christmas season a completely different one for you. Let's go ahead and stand together. Let's pray. Jesus, we're thankful, we're humbled that you came as light into this dark world. Why, why, why would you do that for us? Why would you do that for me? With the darkness and the, the times I choose this world over you, selfishness, greed, and pride, And yet, as I look at you and you still have your arms open, what can I do but be in awe of your love, in awe of your grace, in awe of your incredible mercy. Help us to embrace that light today, not to hide anymore like Adam and Eve in the garden, but to to come to you, knowing that perfect love casts out all fear. As we take the bread and the cup, we remember the body of Jesus broken and the blood poured out for us. We do it with joy and remembrance of you. In your name we pray.